Before we get started, I'd like to say thank you to CoinKite for supporting this show. To me, CoinKite seems much more like a bunch of Bitcoin geeks making cool shit than a formal company. This, however, doesn't mean they don't take their work seriously. Quite on the contrary, as these guys take more of an adversarial mindset to the products they develop than any other company that I'm aware of in the Bitcoin space. Their most popular product is the cold card hardware wallet, which has become an extremely popular method amongst hardcore Bitcoiners for self-custodying their Bitcoin. The most recent version of this product, the MK4, is out now with several new features designed to increase ease of use, introduce even more security features for multiple attack vectors, and make the degree of security which cold card offers more robust than ever. Thankfully, these guys also like to have some fun and tinker with some not-so-serious products, which has resulted in a personal favorite of mine, the Block Clock Mini. Whether you've begun orienting your life around block time, need to check an open dime balance, want to keep an eye on the Bitcoin exchange rate, or just get a kick out of watching Moscow time slowly trend towards zero, the Block Clock Mini has become a favored piece of Bitcoin paraphernalia and an increasingly less subtle way of signaling that you've become fully orange-pilled. To learn more about all their awesome products and stay up to date on what they're working on, visit coinkite.com. Let's do it. Carl, how are you? Thanks for joining me today. Doing good. Thanks for having me so, on. So um, I'm, I was introduced to you, I guess again, by, by Sid, who I had on recently, who's driving a motorcycle across the US and hitting as many Bitcoin meetups as he can. <clears throat> and it was there that I saw that I think we interacted you sent me a message on twitter before but basically he was like you got to talk to this guy and then he hooked he hit us up again and um well maybe i'll get you to introduce yourself and your backstory and then we can get into all the juicy details that i know myself and many others are increasingly interested in these days sure yeah uh my name's carl i i've been doing this homestead uh, permaculture thing for a number of years now um it all started back when I was, I found out about this uh, housing style called Earthships, and uh, I ended up doing an apprenticeship out in New Mexico with Michael Reynolds, building one of those things, and um, found out about permaculture there, and I went on this long journey of, of ending up, uh, I used to think that, you know, uh, homesteading, or the, the Earthship was going to, if I could build this, this self-sustainable house that it would take care of me, and I, I could... Uh, <clears throat> if I took care of it, but, um, yeah, it led me into this homesteading thing, which I've been doing now. And, um, it's been quite the adventure to say the least. So you come from a background in, in film, right? I think you said yeah. you were working in reality TV slash documentaries, and then you came across this concept of what is, what is an earthship? Like what, before we get into what you've, kind of been up to what is an earthship and why were you interested in the first place so I, yeah the an earthship is um it's a fully self-sustaining home um passive solar design uh the idea is that you know if, like when you're sailing across the ocean in a ship you need everything uh you need to take everything with you to survive and so this idea of an earthship is that you build a home on the earth that in, it's self-contained with everything you need to survive so you catch water off the roof um, you, you heat and cool passively with the sun, uh, you produce power with solar panels or wind, the, the front of the house has a greenhouse in it. So you're growing some of your own nutrition there. Um, and you recycle the water many times. Uh, so the water comes in off the roof, you drink it, but well, you filter it and then you drink it and then it goes down the drain. You flush the toilets with it. 
and then it goes out into the front of the house and waters your your fruit trees, your plants out there. And so that was an incredibly attractive idea to me that you, you could just build this thing. And as long as you maintained its operation, then it was going to maintain your sustenance as well. And tell me about how you went from that to what you're currently doing. Like, did it not pan out the way you thought it would? Was that not a sustainable model? Like, how did you wind up from an interest in that to what you're doing now? Well, when I was there apprenticing, uh, that's when I first heard about permaculture. And I, I, I thought, you know, I, did, I had no idea how much it took to really produce your own, like how much food, like uh, how much work it took or how much it took to produce a lot of your own food. I was thinking, oh, the greenhouse, you can just grow, you know, all the stuff you need in there. Um, but really, that's not the case. You, you need quite a bit more space than that. Um, and so I was living in Los Angeles. I was trying to, you know, I was experimenting with uh, these bottle gardens in the window, growing microgreens, had a worm bin, just trying to do whatever I could to explore some of these ideas of permaculture and producing uh, your own stuff. Um, and when I was there, I wanted to build one of these earthships. Uh, I was talking to architects and stuff, and there was just too many red, too much red tape and permitting process. Uh, there, there's these mountainside lots that were like 15,000 bucks, you know, for a little quarter acre. Um, and so I was like, oh, I could, I could save up and, and get one of those. And then I'll just plink away at building this house myself. The house is built, airships are built with uh, rammed earth tires. So you just basically pound, pound dirt into a tire with a sledgehammer and stack it like bricks. Um, and I thought, oh, oh, I could plink away at this. All I need to do is buy the land. So I was talking to an architect. Well, what do I need to do in order to be allowed to do this? And well, you need to build an improved road up to the structure. You need to have the power lines run, even though I want to be off grid. You have to have a sewer system there. All, all this stuff that now uh, a $15,000 lot on the mountainside that nobody else wants is like $250,000 or more after you have to jump through all the hoops just to get the permit to start building. So I said, forget that. I, I can't, there's just no way to make it uh, possible. And I started looking for uh, properties to just, with, with a little bit more uh, lax regulations, like where I'm at now, it's agriculturally zoned. So there's a lot of gray area in the zoning. I can kind of do whatever I want with the buildings. Are you public with where you are now, state-wise? Or? Yeah, I'm in Michigan. I'm, I, I go to the, the Benton Harbor Bitcoin meetup. Um, that's really how all this, uh, how I got it connected into the deeper levels of uh, the Bitcoin communities through the meetups. I, I after going to them, I'm like, man, everybody, if they're into Bitcoin, you need to find your local Bitcoin meetup and start connecting with everybody because this is how we're going to do it. Yeah. Um, what was it in the first place that led you from being in film to this Earthship thing? So I, I think that like film, I, I was like, I went to film school. Um, I had this, you know, they teach you in school, you know, that, oh, filmmaking is like this universal language. It's a really powerful way to change the world. And um, so I was working in documentary style TV in Chicago, reality TV and stuff like that. And what I thought was a good thing ended up, I learned, the more I worked in the industry, I realized that, man, these people are just trying to manipulate and bend uh, the story um, just to, to get the ratings or to get the show deal signed and everything. And there was, it just really wasn't ethically lining up with what I wanted to do. This opportunity to, I'd been interested in this Earthship idea just you know, dreaming about it, reading about it. I bought the books, read through the books on how to build them and stuff. But 
then I saw, I just went on the Earthship website one day and I saw that there was an opening for an apprenticeship. And when I say apprenticeship, they make you pay a hundred bucks just to prove that you're going to show up and you basically bring a tent and camp at the build site and you get to learn, you just work side by side with everybody learning how to build this house. And so I just said, screw it. I quit my job and uh, took the dive in, uh, just went to New Mexico from Chicago and went for it. Um, and you, I'm, you know, you meet a lot of crazy people along the way, uh, that, you know, one thing leads to another, but. Right. And so you leave California, it was California, right? Where you, this, this parcel of land was on offer and you wind yeah. up in, in Michigan and, and, you know, tell me how the story de- develops from there. Yeah. It's, so I, while I was, uh, getting discouraged by this, the fact that I couldn't build a surship in, in LA, I, I said, well, what do I want? What do I really need? Um, you know, is I, what kind of, what, what's an ideal property look like based on the studying that I've been doing in permaculture. And uh, so I, I, my parents had lived in this area uh, and I sort of sent my mom this list. I was like, Hey, if you see any, any properties for sale, you know, let me know. Uh, this is kind of what I'm looking for. And she, she ended up finding something on Craigslist and we got in touch with the, the owners. Um, and just the price was too high, way too much, way out of my league. Um, but I just, you know, said, okay, cool. Uh, a, a year went by. They were still there. It was still, the listing was still on Craigslist. This listing was on Craigslist with no action for like years. Um, and so eventually I just said, Hey, I'm going to come. I want to meet you people. I want to come. This is like the perfect property. Uh, and basically that after meeting with them, they said that, you know, well, we can, I, I couldn't afford it. I, so I had to ask for owner financing. That was my only way of, I couldn't get a, a traditional loan to buy the house. I just couldn't qualify. And so I had to be like, Hey, I've got this much money. I think I can make this much over the year working remotely. Uh, you have, you have to kind of trust me here, but I, I think that this is the place for me. And they said that, it, well, they agreed to it. And I, I worked my ass off for a year, just paying, paying them off. And that allowed me to prove that I had enough uh, equity in the house or whatever, as I was remodeling it to then refinance with a traditional mortgage. And now I own the house in a, a regular way, but uh, yeah, it was just uh, kind of the serendipitous thing. They said that, that God told them uh, that I was meant to, to own this property that was going to take care of me and my family. It was very, everyone was crying. You know, it was a very uh, emotional deal when we finally struck it. Interesting. What did you make of that comment at the time? Well, I, I, I was very grateful for their perspective on that. Cause uh, <laughs> you know, I, in my mind, I was, just, I, I was just laser focused on, on trying to get started doing this stuff. Um, just having the opportunity, the, the property just was, was uh, pretty much exactly what I was looking for. Um, so yeah, I, I, at the time I was just like, cool. I, I didn't really believe in God. I wasn't following a, religion per se or anything like that um but i i definitely didn't laugh them you know i wasn't like laughing at them about this idea the neighbors uh they they always said that these people were i don't know what kind of uh christianity they follow but they were always like holding hands like they they said one time there was a tree that was they were getting cut down on the property line and if the the tree fell the wrong way it was going to fall in the neighbor's house and they said they were holding hands next to the guy with the chainsaw chanting and stuff. Um, you know, so they, they were pretty extreme in their uh, practice of this form of Christianity. Right. Um, and I, even to like, there was a problem 
where there was still a lien on the, on the house when I recently refinanced and I had to call uh, the woman to, to get this worked out. And, and she was even still uh, just talking very extremely about uh, the way that, that God is, uh, you know, guiding us all and, and things like that. So. Interesting. So you get the property. What next? How do you, you know, cause and I'll preface this by saying, and I'm sure it's no surprise to you, but there seems to be an interest amongst Bitcoiners, myself included, to being more sovereign, to being less dependent on all the different systems uh, of food and energy and sustenance that exist in the world today. And notwithstanding that it's great to have such conveniences, but I think many of us are increasingly focused on minimizing the degree to which we're dependent on such things. And, you know, having your own homestead where you have your own you raise or grow your own food and you have access to your own water and you've access to your own energy is something that I think really appeals to us. So you seem to have started with a blank slate. And so how do you get something like that rolling? Well, I, I, I had recently, before I, I got to the property, I took this road trip across the Southwest um, and, and South all the way down to Key West from LA kind of as my, you know, see you later LA. I'm just going to, I call them like mini retirements. I read that book, the, the four hour work week. Um, and, and so I, throughout my life, I'd always just saved up a bunch of money and then quit whatever job I had. And then took one of these long road trips for months. And so that was like between LA and, and coming to the house, I took this long road trip and I was staying at, I, I had just discovered Airbnb at the time. So I was staying at all these weird Airbnbs, a bus and they're actually that, well, it was my stay at this bus in, um, New Orleans that got me thinking like, all I need to do is, is figure out a way to, to monetize the house that the house can pay, pay like bootstrap my, the farm. Uh, and so the first thing I did when I moved in is I, I separated, the, I started renovating the house to have two units. Um, the main level is what I was, was renovating to, to rent on Airbnb. And uh, the, the lower level, I insulated the crap out of it and just trying to make it a little bunker for me to live in that was hyper efficient. So in the winter time, you know, it's cold here in Michigan. I have this nice little bubble that I can live in uh, and not have to heat the whole big area of the house upstairs when the guests aren't coming through. And so, yeah, it was, I just started off by, by really tearing the house apart and making it as efficient as possible and creating this, this idea of the, the Airbnb business model. Um, and then I, once I realized that the Airbnb thing was working, I got, I was like, well, I can build a tiny house. I can go find a year. I can build this other stuff, get, as many little dwellings out here as possible to uh, push this ecotourism thing. You look like you're in a yurt right now. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the yurt. Uh, I, I bought this yurt on eBay used. I took it up. I took it down in the middle of winter. I thought, Oh, it's a tent. You should be able to just, you know, I, I showed up with like a, a little toolbox and a trailer uh, it was in, in Illinois. And I thought, Oh, I'll take it down in a day and drive it home. And, uh, it'll be no problem. Well, the people built this thing not to be taken apart. It took me like four days and I had to call my brother in for help. Uh, and it was like 18 degrees outside and I did not have, I did not have nearly what I needed to to do it. But um, finally, I, after a few years of, of plinking away at it, I finally got this thing up and it's on Airbnb. Now we, uh, we just had guests check out last Sunday. Nice. And Sid stayed in it too, actually. Um, I think he enjoyed it. Sweet. All right. So, so tell me about building the homestead. Tell me about the food and the animals and all that shit break into it. 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I got a little criticism from people because I was working remotely, uh, doing this editing thing. I, that, that was my main thing is post-production. Um, so I was trying to work remotely as much as possible while the Airbnb, you know, while I was renovating the house and everything. But at the same time, I was trying to like practice this permaculture stuff. I was digging what I thought were, you know, my idea of swales and I built this Hugel culture mound and I was just trying to plant my perennial or, or my annual vegetables in any way. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I just started doing stuff. And uh, over time, you enough failures, you learn something though each time. Okay, well, you can't just dig a trench and throw the seeds on the ground and hope something grows. You have to, there's a reason why people are, are doing things the way they do them over time. And so, you know, I, I started off just getting annual vegetables going. Then I got chickens. I, I, my wife now, I had met her pretty early on and, and she was really pushing for the animals. Like I, I was kind of like, man, animals sound like a lot of work. I don't, I don't want to really mess with that. We got our hands full with all this other stuff, just wrapping our arms around the property in general, clearing out old trees, just getting the place back up to what the, the pastures uh, needed mowing. I needed to find a tractor, all these kind of things. How big is the property? It's 20 acres. So I, if I were to start over, I'd start smaller. Uh, 20 acres has been, I still really haven't gotten really under all under control, um, but we're utilizing it as best we can. I mean, there's more stuff that we can take advantage of here than, than we can have time to do. Mm -hmm. um, but so, yeah, just one thing, you know, you start with chickens, we learn, we learned a little bit about how to, you know, get the chickens going. We had some egg production. Okay, cool. We're getting our own eggs. Then it's like, well, maybe we should start doing broiler chickens and try and grow some chickens for meat. And then, it, then there was this opportunity to get these sheep. So we got three sheep. They had, they were all bred. They were pregnant when we bought them. Then they gave birth to twins each. And then we, you know, it ended up being half females, half males. So then we, we butchered the, the three males. We took them, we, the, the closest USDA butcher is like over an hour away from us, which is really unfortunate, but we had to throw them in the back of our Subaru, our pick, you know, our pickup truck uh, to take them to the butcher. And, and then we found somebody with a Ram. We bred our, you know, the, the, the six females that we had left the next year, we had more sheep, did the same thing, kept the females, ate the males. And to, to the point now where we have 60 sheep, uh, we decided at some point that getting draft horses would be a good idea. Um, I, I, for a while, I, uh, I worked at a nursery just to learn how to do plant propagation. This guy was down the road. He had a very, uh, intriguing list of, of heirloom, uh, fruit trees. And I went over there just trying to ask questions. And he's like, Hey, you sound really interesting. You should just work for me. And I was like, Oh, okay, sure. I, so I spent four hours, uh, a few times a day or a few days a week working with him. He taught me how to graft. He taught me all the ins and outs of uh, plant propagation, making softwood cuttings, hardwood cuttings, so on and so forth. So then I started doing, uh, grafting these fruit trees and focusing on the perennial vegetables. Every year we buy a few more uh, different, you know, whether it's hops, grapes, berry plants, we're just constantly planting stuff, um, developing out our food forest. And it's amazing. It's been seven years now. Uh, at the beginning we had nothing and now all of a sudden it's like there's just crap growing around us everywhere and we we have we're having to sell stuff we're having to we have too much abundance we have to get rid of it um so it's i i kind of i mean i'm going on and on on all over the place but there's a lot to it uh and it's it's the, the key thing is just figure out kind of what you like what you want 
and and just start trying stuff uh, and read books for sure. Yeah. Read books on it. That's been incredibly helpful. Well, don't worry about going on because I want to hear about all this stuff. But are you, was the lifestyle what you expected? Are you happy with this lifestyle? I mean, it sounds like one, a lot of work, but I can also see how it might be very satisfying or gratifying a, a feeling of independence and sovereignty that few people probably get to experience. Like, how do you feel about the lifestyle that it's delivered to you on a day-to-day basis? We, my wife and I joke a lot because we're, we're, we're always like, this is the year that we're going to turn the corner and we're going to be, you know, we're, we're going to really be doing it now. Uh, and it's it just, you slowly one step at a time are, are sort of walking away from traditional society uh, to the point where now you look, uh, we look back and we're like, wow, the life that we're living is just, it's unrecognizable to what we, where we started, um, you know, living in cities. I lived in Chicago and LA is, and I hard, hardly knew how to, you know, I, it could hardly even use tools, you know, it's, uh, so it just takes, um, it just slowly catches up to you, I guess, this, this, uh, idea of sovereignty, um, until you, you build the skill sets one, one step at a time. And, all of a sudden it's like, wow, I know how to do all this stuff that I never knew how to do before just because I needed to figure it out because I couldn't afford to, to pay somebody else to do it for me. Mm. Is it a lot of work? Well, physically point? it's, it's physically demanding. I could say that, uh, uh I, I probably walk uh, between six and seven miles a day in the summertime when, when things are really moving, when we're moving the sheep and a lot of the times I'm carrying something while I'm walking too. Um, now I, we, we could get one of those golf carts or gators, a lot of four wheeler to get around, but I, I like, I just enjoy, I was a wrestler, a cross country runner. I enjoy the to feeling my muscles burn and, and feeling tired at the end of the day from having done physical exertion. So in that regard, it, you have to be, well, you don't have to be, there's a way to do it if you don't like physical work. Uh, but for the way I'm doing it, yeah, it's very physically demanding. Yeah, I can, that resonates with me a lot. Cause I, I, I actually, you know, at some point in the future, I can't wait for those days where you're out under the sun all day and you're carrying things around and you're moving things and your hands are dirty and you're sweating your ass off. And then you come back at the end of the day and whatever, however you unwind, you know, like a beer, a joint, right. uh, just a glass, big glass of coconut water or whatever, and sit back and feel all a sense of yeah. accomplishment, you know? It's, uh, it's very rewarding. Um, and, and I mean, sometimes bad things happen too, though, that, that you just, it's just nature. We had a, uh, we paid 600 bucks for this, uh, Ram, uh, registered Katahdin Ram. So if we were to breed it with our sheep, uh, that increases the value of the stock because they're provably, uh, uh, gen- genetically sound. They're, mm-hmm. they're provably this, this breed. And so we, we had it in the winter. We, we, it, it did successfully breed a few of the, the sheep, but it, it, it ended up hanging itself on the, on the hay feeder that we had. Somehow it got its head through and slipped its foot, its foot slipped. And it, we walked out one day and it was just hanging there dead. And it was in a, it was a pretty financial loss and terrible to see this animal go and didn't know what to do with it. The ground was all frozen. It was, it was frozen solid. It was like, man, how do we even bury this thing? Um, so there's, there's definitely, uh, this aspect of just stuff happens all the time, uh, that, that does negatively 
affect your attitude. You just feel like, man, are we doing the right thing? You know, uh, is this profitable? Is it sometimes if we, we haven't been the best at keeping uh, records and notes on, on how much money we're spending on feed and things like that. And so sometimes we're not quite sure if what we're doing even makes financial sense. Um, but at the end of the day, it's when you crack into that freezer and you pull out a, a lamb steak and you cook it for dinner and you're, and then you have like garlic scapes from the garden and you, you finished it off with a, a, some strawberry jam on a piece of toast or whatever. It's like, you realize, wow, this is, this ain't bad, you know, and <laughs> drinking homebrew beer and, you know, all we, we make our own beer, all kinds of stuff that so all of a sudden it's like, wow, a lot of the stuff that we're eating, consuming and using are stuff that we made. And we, we had a direct hand and we know exactly what went into it. Yeah. You know, it, I'm sure you've seen this film, but the biggest little farm, mm. your, your mm -hmm. experience reminds me of that film, you know, because they started off wanting to do something similar, or maybe they even wanted to do like a monoculture or monocrop sort of thing. And then they were advised by this somewhat eccentric permaculture guy to like, no, no, no. You got to just put, have as much diversity as possible. And then they run into all these problems where like, you know, 50% of their yield is being eaten by rodents and pests and stuff like that. And, you know, the, the natural response is to try to control them and kill them. But the guy was like, nope, you just got to let it find its level and, you know, keep introducing diversity and let the, the ecosystem find an equilibrium that works for all constituents of that ecosystem. And, you know, of course the film ends where it's a, a very like a successful venture and it's a very seemingly like a very lovely um operation that they have going and it kind of sounds like that's the journey that you're on how do, how do you determine what direction to take this you know what animals to introduce what plants what you know how do you make those decisions so now the property is kind of telling us what to do um in in a as we graze the sheep as we we move them over each pasture we, you, you notice uh, different weeds that are popping up, uh, certain grasses taking over. Uh, for example, every year we plow up about two acres um, and plant turnips to feed the sheep over the winter time. But how do we make the decision on, on where to plant, which field to use, plant the turnips in? Well, this year we're going to plant the turnips in the field that's being taken over by the sedge grass that the sheep don't want to eat. So that'll give us a chance to replant that pasture with something more productive so the sheep will have better food in the spring. And so, uh, and then another example is like, we've got this rabbit colony. Uh, it's, it's about, uh, I don't know, a 200, 2,500 square foot. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a small area fenced in with rabbits in there, uh, just breeding naturally. And so what we do is we clip a bunch of tree branches and, and pull weeds and throw it in there to feed them. Well, I had these apple rootstocks, these seedling rootstocks that had gotten away from me. I didn't get a chance to graft them. Uh, they had gotten too fat, too large for the way that I know how to graft to graft with them. Uh, and I, I couldn't dig them. Up. I ran out of time to dig them up and sell them. So what did I start doing? I just, I walked past them a hundred times thinking, what do I do with these trees? I don't want to just dig them up and throw them away. Uh, so then I, I, it was right next to the rabbit colony. I was like, rabbits eat the apple, uh, you know, apple prunings. Why don't I just start hacking away at these trees? It's free food for the rabbits. And if I kill the trees, at, at least I've done something. I've grown rabbit meat with it instead of just using my effort to just get them out of my way. Um, there's a lot of examples like that, that, that as you pay more attention to what's going on, uh, 
you just come up with these solutions for how to utilize the property. Another example is we've got our horses uh, with the draft horses are in a, a track that goes through uh, about two acres of woods. We don't want the horses out on the pasture because the pasture is what we use to grow our sheep, uh, grow the, the, the lamb meat. And so we feed the horses hay mainly because they, they actually are two, they're what's called easy keepers. These are halflinger horses. Um, and if they eat too much grass, they develop a condition called founder, which is uh, dangerous for them. And so we keep them on this track through the woods so they can run and get exercise. We're not sacrificing any of our, our pasture and we're feeding them hay. Well, there's a big area in the center of the track that was just, it was sugar maple trees. I, I tapped the, the trees uh, to make maple syrup. Uh, we had that area logged to clear out some of the weed trees, tulip poplars, cottonwoods, stuff that was hindering the growth of the maples. Uh, after we did that, all of this undergrowth was starting to grow up. Uh, new sassafras saplings and uh, multiflora rose and all this crap that was getting in my way and making it hard for me to uh, harvest the, the maple sap. And so we decided, well, we've already got a fence going around the area. Why don't we put our rams in there for the summertime? That way we keep them separate from our, our flock of sheep. They don't breed out, out of, you know, they don't breed them when we don't want to. They've got all this free food in the, the saplings of the trees. And then our, our stand of maple trees is clear in the winter for me to then go tap the trees and, and harvest the syrup or the sap. So the, all these integrations and connections just reveal themselves more and more as you start utilizing different areas of the property. That's so fucking cool. Um... Do you have any cattle, like beef? No, uh, I don't really know too much about uh, what what the specific requirements are for cattle. Um, I certainly know the reason why we got sheep is because I can pick a I can pick the carcass up, but with my hand, you know, I could just it weighs about as much as I do. Mm -hmm. um, a big a big uh, you or lamb, you know, they they or about 120 pounds at the largest at the end of the season when we start butchering them. So we don't need anything special to, to work with the sheep. Um, I can butcher them with just basic small, you know, there's no special equipment. Now I don't really know necessarily you butcher them now. I, yeah, I, I do. We last year we took, um, we took seven Ram lambs to a butcher uh, thinking that, okay, we'll just, have them butcher it all save me some time because i'm not the best i'm not the best at it i can cut it into cuts that are edible but not saleable you, you know what i mean they're not pretty um and so we took them to a butcher and there's i we learned the hard way in that instance that there's something called the butcher share um where these people when i when i butcher the the sheep we get almost all the meat all the bones everything you know we get to keep it all well when what we got back and the butcher uh, was like maybe 30% less than what we expected. We, we called him and we said, hey, there should be another bag of ground or something. We're missing some meat here. Where's all the meat from these animals? We, we, we took, it was just unbelievable how much was missing. It seemed like it was gone. And, and it was just due to the inefficiency of their, they're not trying to uh, eke out every little last little piece of meat. They're trying to get this thing cut up and out the door so they can get the next animal in. Right. Um, and so we lost a lot of meat that way. So now I'm, I will butcher our own every year just to be sure that we get, uh, enough for us. Now I can't sell that stuff. So because of the rules, um, so we will take the animals that we do sell, uh, to a butcher, not that butcher 
we're going to try a different one, but it's hard to find a butcher. Can you, I mean, you can give away what you, can you like trade and barter what you butcher yourself? Like with other yeah. people in the area? Yeah. And we, I do trade a uh, lamb per hay uh, for our horses. And we do feed the, the sheep a bunch of hay over the winter as well. The neighbor down the road, he was selling uh, the, the, these big round bales of hay to us for a certain price. And uh, it was, I thought it was expensive and, but it was convenient because he's local, right? We've, we've gone through all kinds of different driving here, driving there, renting trailers, getting this just to get the hay here. And so it was very nice that he would come and deliver it. And eventually I was just kind of like, Hey, do you, would you take some lamb uh, and lower the cost of the, the hay? And he, he thought that idea was great. And <laughs> I brought him a, a lamb uh, at the end of the fall last year and they loved it and so now and then i was like well do you want to and lower the price even more and so it seems like at, more and more i can i can give them more and more lamb up to a certain point in exchange for this hay right. um, i'm assuming prior to doing this you hadn't butchered a lamb before no no i got a book uh it really what, it what was pictured. that like the first time you did it shooting dispatching it you know is um because i've not i'm not even a person that has handled guns that often um maybe shoot some skeet here or there have you know go to the range with people once a year no, let, you know no hunting or anything before this no no and so um you get i i get this uh rush of adrenaline and and there's this um this pressure to make sure the shot's good uh and i've i've botched it a couple times where I've had to shoot the animal. I've had to shoot it twice. Uh, you know, I, you, you aim for a certain spot and sometimes you miss and it comes out in the throat and they're running around and blood shooting out. And then you got to quickly make a, a decision on try and shoot, try and shoot it again. So it goes down and cause the, the shot, it really is just to stun it. It doesn't necessarily uh, kill it right away. Uh, once you shoot it, then you come in and you, you cut the throat to let the animal bleed. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's definitely, um, it was it hard difficult? at first. It, yeah. It, 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 and we started with chickens. I mean, that was the first animal that we, we did for meat, uh, was, was the chicken and those, the chickens flop around and there's, if you, when you're not ready for it, the blood is flying all over the place and you feel the warmth of it on your, on your skin. And, um, it's definitely, uh, an interesting, you, you just like, Kind of think to yourself, all right, I, I thank you for your sacrifice, you know, sacrificing your life to feed me, but it's uh, it's not something I like to do. I'll yeah, put it that well, way. that's what I was going to ask you, like how reconcile might be the wrong word, but how do you find that you allow yourself to approach that aspect of things optimally? Because, you know, I, I've shared this before. I've only been hunting once. Right. And I always, I've always, I'm a big meat eater. Right. And, and I don't like being a hypocrite. And so like, you know, I wanted to have the experience of taking the life for myself. So I'm not so detached from it. And I just go to the grocery store and see a nice steak or even get it from, you know, my local uh, meat guy who delivers it and raises them ethically and all that stuff. But I still didn't like the, the detachment from the nitty gritty process of actually it winding up on my plate. And I don't want to be involved in that. And uh, even though on that particular hunting trip, because we were, you know, we were three days out and we still hadn't found anything by the time one was spotted, you know, a more, um, 
more experienced hand took the ultimate shot. I was right, right next to him. And I went up to the animal afterwards and just internally said, if, you know, made my peace with it effectively. Um, because, and I can imagine in, in your sort of scenario, like when you're with these animals every day, you end up noticing patterns. You probably end up noticing certain personalities. You end up developing some kind of a relationship with them. And you probably really enjoy that. I, I know that I would because, you know, it's another sentient being. It's another, you know, it's another expression of life. And there's a lot good wrapped up in that. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm always interested in how, and I, I don't like the risk, you know, for, cause a lot of people might just be like, oh, I don't give a fuck. It's an animal. I killed it. Like I'm not, that's not a, an approach or a perspective that I really appreciate or get much from. Like, I like to hear how people bridge the gap between, you know, reconcile that tension and, you know, and so if you had any particular thoughts on that, I'd love to hear them. Well, I don't know if you've heard, I mean, there's a practice of uh, people pray over their food. Um, and so I do think that there is more to uh, life or we, we do express these subtle energies. Um, and so, and I think that's why you get this, this adrenaline and this, this hyper-focus when you, when you do have to dispatch the animal, um, it's your way of, of, like you said, reconciling that, uh, those subtle energies. If, if you have anger and you just want to kill that fucker, you know, sometimes some of the sheep, the ones they there's bad ones, you know, that always get out. And I do have those thoughts like, man, I just can't wait to, to get that way, get that one in the freezer. Cause they're an asshole. Um, but when it comes down to it, you, you have, if you can create that, that, that energy of gratitude, and, uh, and, and, and project that onto the animal. I, I, it certainly can't hurt anything. Um, make that, I, I believe it produces a better meat at the end of the day. Um, and has, has being involved in this process influenced you as a person at all, at all in terms of, well, whatever gratitude or, uh, appreciation for or understanding or perspective on on nature and life and any of that kind of stuff you know has have has been confronted with you know the the reality of it all influenced you in any way yeah i mean so so like i said when i bought the property i wasn't really religious at the time i i didn't really think too much about it to be honest uh was i was just more focused on the nuts and bolts of life and and now being so connected in to the production and 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 creation of my own sustenance and watching the things grow and, and everything reproduce and multiply, you can't help, but having these thoughts, just like, thank God for the sun. Thank God for the rain. This stuff is like, it's what keeps us all here. Things moving. And um, so there's definitely this spiritual, you just get a sense. You can't avoid it. This, this sense of a, 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 con, a deep connection to nature and the spiritual aspect of everything. Uh, you just see how it's all connected together after you do it for a few years and uh, to can't take it for granted. I mean, I'm, I'm, I had my fingers crossed for rain at the pasture at the top of the hill. Uh, it's high, it's high ground. The, the grass isn't looking that great. Uh, if we don't have grass, we can't grow the meat. And it's like, man, I, I'm hoping that the rain comes just praying for it. Like, Oh, please. Uh, I think it's going to work out. Here comes the rain, you know? Right. Uh, you get these thoughts. Yeah. It's, I actually wanted to ask you about that aspect of things. Um, when you brought up the example of the, 
using the rams to keep the maple tree area you know basically how you're saying like it tells you what you need to do and how to direct resources and how to you know what to plant etc and it's just so interesting that 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 those patterns emerge and you know your kind of job is almost to like interpret it correctly and and find the solution that's most conducive to a harmonious balance between the different constituent or the different components of the ecosystem that you're fostering you know and it's it, it's uh it's almost like you know nature is trying to nudge you or wink to you it'll be like yo you know like over here do balance this out and and funnel something here and you're like oh okay and you do it and you get flourishing and you get balance again and then it consolidates and then it's like yo over here do this over here and you know it must be interesting to increase the bandwidth of your communication with nature broadly speaking it's like at first you don't know what you're looking at uh you, i i didn't like the i didn't see the value in the trees i just saw a bunch of trees and i didn't really even have a concept of like that's a 40 year old tree you can't just make that happen it, it just it takes time and, mm. and as you as you walk past and and keep observing all this stuff over and over again yeah you, all of a sudden you're like as you learn more too you realize th there's more potential and possibility for how you can continue to tie everything together and uh and utilize it more effectively um and and i mean with permaculture the whole goal is to to constantly be improving nature you don't want you're not trying to take away from it your your actions should be trying to improve it and then you get something from taking those actions the yield comes as well so um yeah it's just there's a con a continuous realization uh, and, and learning uh that goes on i i i don't see it ever stopping i i'm excited about it too I don't know what, what I don't know, you, you know, and, and what I'm going to figure out. And, and yeah. everybody's situation is different. Everybody has this opportunity when they work, if they work closely with their property or with their environment to make a discovery to, to, and, and to make an integration that nobody's ever done before. Uh, and, and it's because it's all hyper-specific to the, to the environmental factors, the social factors, the all, everything it ties together. I, I mean, that in the money messiah you kind of talk about that like how money is is encapsulating in all of this uh all of the um the different aspects we, we kind of miss it sometimes that that it there everything is so tied together um it must yeah. be it must be really the confluence of you know the mixture of a renewed or amplified or as yet unexperienced form of gratitude, as well as responsibility, as well as a type of faith, as you're alluding to before, like all these things coming together and being so salient in this type of environment. Whereas before, you know, as you mentioned in Chicago, LA, whatever, in a city life, you're so removed from all this stuff, you know, like you're, the things that you're contending with are like, you know, the social gossip dynamics at work and what's happening on social media and the blinking lights and everything you're so removed from the real forces that are causing all of this to actually work and take place and function so removed from it and when you it sounds like in an environment that you've created for yourself you're brought back to noticing like 
the very real patterns and forces of nature that we are subject to and forever, you know, subservient to in a sense, but also that provide an opportunity for us to contribute to positively, you know, to foster uh, more abundance through and more harmony through. And it's, and, and, the, and as you alluded to also the very real work involved, right. The, you know, the, the proof of work that you need to put in, I see yeah. your fingertips now, you know, you got dirt underneath them. They're all, you were talking about the, the physical exertion required. Like it's that engaging in those patterns and, and like kind of massaging them into a, a more productive or harmonious, you know, creation, let's say creating more abundance, creating more life, creating more food requires that element requires that, you know, the sweat equity, the, the work involved. And I think it's like, um, in the city, you live this life of, of it's focused around, it's built around convenience and, mm. and, uh, I mean, in a lot of ways subsidy, but like the, in LA people have they had orange trees, they had loquat trees, pomegranates. You, you'd walk down the, the, the sidewalk and there'd be fruit. It, it's there. And, and, and people were just ignoring it. Like, I don't need to, I don't need to take advantage of this. I can, it's, it's, it's too, it's more convenient for me to just go to the grocery store and get this stuff. I don't need to go pick all the oranges off my orange tree and make marmalade. Why? I can just go buy marmalade. It takes way too much work for me to do that. It's so it's in that way, uh, the, the, their, their lifestyle is subsidized by this convenience so they can, they can afford to ignore it, the, the stuff that's just growing right around them. Uh, and so when, when you're like, I guess I'm just trying consciously to, as a homesteader, you, the idea is to take what you're, uh, where you live and, and squeeze every ounce of productivity out of it but you have to play this balance of you can't squeeze it too hard because then you'll destroy what you have. You have to, you have to squeeze it just enough so that it's getting better all the time and you're still getting something from it. Yeah. It's super interesting. Like you're trying to figure out how you can insert yourself into existing patterns of nature to amplify them or to assist in them maintaining a harmonious balance, but, increasing the abundance that they produce or something like that. And, and that that's yeah. your role in, in the mix, not to overdo it such that you break the harmony and destroy the resource, but find that sweet spot where, you know, you're a catalyst for more harmonious abundance, something like that. Yeah. I like I, the example in the example of like uh, when we logged the, the property, we had, I had a forestry consultant come out here and advise on which trees would be beneficial to remove and sell. Now, had I just contacted a logging company who was just interested in buying the trees, they might have just taken every oh, tree that was valuable um, and and really caused a lot of damage. Uh, and so, yeah, there's this balance of you you do leave some. Uh, you can't, yeah, you just can't take everything at once. I guess it's, I mean. In that regard, too, is the this idea of um, the long time preference, uh, mm. waiting, you know, because the the act of doing that is actually better in the long run. More, it will provide you with a, a longer, a more resilient outcome uh, over time. Mm -hmm. It's very tempting to 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 take the cash from the trees right away, and, totally. and deal with that with with the repercussions later. Um, you know, I've spoken to some 
Bitcoiners that are <clears throat> getting involved in cattle. And I think a lot of us have potentially somewhat of an overly simplistic view of like, you know, a house in the woods or a house on the beach with a bunch of land and a bunch of cows on them. And maybe not all, you know, maybe not growing a tremendous amount of food or any of that, but basically just the cows are resilient. They live off the land. You don't have to manage them much beyond moving some fencing. And you've got your the bulk of your food taken care of, you know, because a lot of us have a very high meat diet. And then for whatever else you need, you know, your fruits, some veg, your honey, you just exchange it for people in the area or you buy it at local markets and stuff like that. What was it about the approach you took that you wanted to have a more diversified or a broader uh, approach? Well, I guess that's, it comes down to the, so in permaculture, there's the three ethics, earth care, people care, and then redistribution of the abundance. But there's, it's really also this, this concept of the 12 principles and how you can get those principles to interlock and interact. Uh, to, that's how you, you accomplish this uh, ever-increasing abundance is by, by, by taking your actions and applying these principles to it. And so like one of them is to uh, value diversity. And so even though maybe my goal is just to get meat from the sheep, I, I am trying to diversify. Well, and you're also trying to capture and store energy as, as much as possible. And growing a bunch of different stuff in a diverse way is capturing the sunlight, the energy as, as best you can. Um, and, and so, and it's not necessarily to say that you grow an apple tree, you have to do everything. You have to like process the apples into cider or uh, make apple butter or anything like that. You, you just have this, this thing that's producing something for you. Uh, and maybe you can f use that to feed an animal. You, there, maybe it's just what I like to call the nature tax where you, uh, you're growing plants and, and things just to in, uh, encourage more uh, diversity in birds that are on your property or pollinating insects. You, you, so be, you could just get cows and, and pasture and move them. Um, and that would be accomplishing one thing, but you, by integrating all this other stuff into it, that's how you create this diverse, the, the strength, this resilient ecosystem, I suppose. It, 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 if something were to happen to your cattle, then you've got this other stuff that might help you recover from that faster. Um, you mentioned kind of energy capture there. And of course, you know, we talk a lot about energy in its various forms in the Bitcoin space. How has this enterprise uh, influenced your perspective on energy, generally speaking, you know, and how it, the, the role it takes in, in all of this and in life generally. And you even sent me, a, I think, a, a blog post that uh, I think it was about the different forms of capital. And I think, you know, yeah. obviously en energy was either one or several of those forms. So how, how has your perspective on on that been influenced by all this well bitcoin i, I think really made something click because it's it's like if i can if i can take sunlight and turn it into something um and and e so either that be maple syrup so now i don't have to buy sugar at the grocery store uh, i've taken that sunlight turned it into a product and so that's more sats that i can you know that's less money that i have to spend so that's more sats that i can save and then when i produce more of the maple syrup than what I need. Now I can sell some for some sats too. And mm. so if, if you're, I mean, I like to think of it all as we're, we're any farmer is a sunlight farmer. You're just trying to catch as much sunlight and turn it into stuff here on the planet as possible. 
And then it's, it's how you can utilize that stuff, uh, which you, you can then, we have Bitcoin now, so we can turn it into Bitcoin. So find somebody who needs that extra stuff that you've got. And I think this is how uh, we ultimately work our way down into, uh, as Bitcoin purchasing power goes up, the, the deflationary nature, the cost of everything will go down. People, farmers will be incentivized to produce as much as they can in an effective way to get those sats. And then at a certain point, enough people are doing it. There's more food and, and sustenance to go around. Now we've got, we can spend our time thinking about other things, you know? Um, but yeah, the energy capture is, is at the crux of it all. I, it's, I guess I, I wrote a little bit about, you know, how agriculture and this stranded energy are, are kind of the same thing when it comes to like, you can either mine Bitcoin with, with stranded energy through the mining rigs, or you can grow some stuff and, and, and trade it for Bitcoin. Uh, you're, you're producing this, this stuff out of the sunlight. You're just, it's manifesting here and you, you can, and then you turn it into sats and you've got something forever. Everything is just Bitcoin mining, right? Whether you're using ASICs or you're using maple trees, it's just exactly. using, it's just turning energy into sats. That's everything that boils down to that. We're turning excess well, I, energy into sats maybe. Yeah. I, I, well, and I always like, I think about, you know, what does a world look like when there is total abundance? What do people, what do people, this is going back to the eight forms of capital. It's like, once you have total abundance and everybody's got their sats that they, they only need to spend a, a small fraction of them to survive. And they're just able to save more and more and more. What do people focus on? You know, yeah. it's like, I think people focus on art and culture and, and, and technology building, building, creating even more abundance. You know, the Jeff Booth's, uh, the deflationary uh, technology ideas. I think these just get exacerbated by Bitcoin, uh, and it, it, it's going to happen very quickly too. In my opinion, I think that we're we're still at the beginning, obviously, but uh, it's it's a very exciting time to be alive. I agree with that, but I also wonder. You know, we we tend to see the future as the present is. You know, and we project, we extend out trends that we're noticing in the present. But I think part of uh, and not just the fiat system, but part of that kind of uh, endless hamster wheel of artificial deprivation, let's say that so many are placed in as a result of the fiat system, that means that they can't do what you just described. They, they don't have the requisite abundance to deliver to them the free time to consider what is meaningful and what they're interested in and what is novel and what they're curious about and creating beauty and art and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so as a result of that, I think when we say, oh, well, what happens when they do have that time? We kind of just say, well, they'll have more time to uh, pursue or to amplify the trends that are, already exist today. And many of us default to like, wow, crazier technology, right? And I think in the future, of course, the technological trends will, will continue. But I do think that once we do have such a, a baseline foundation of, of security, of financial security, of, of sustenance, as you've been, as you described, I think part of the thing we'll spend more time on is meaning and value and what are the things that are most meaningful and valuable to us. And I, even though I think technology and possibility, generally speaking, potential will be an aspect of that, I can easily see how in, the, in that type of a future, it will be dialed down from the emphasis placed on it today because today it's almost like well, th that frenetic pace 
contributes to that just material investigation. And that material investigation leads to rampant technological advancement. But when that pace subsides a bit and we can direct our attention to less pressing concerns and, and even less material, we might say, well, what is more meaningful? And we have this discussion is kind of a perfect example when we have people that are bringing that perspective of the patterns that exist in nature and perhaps our role and that that you know a potential role involved in that well, what does that mean for the types of uh lives and families and communities and cultures that we want to participate in and contribute to and i think there'll there'll be a greater emphasis on those big questions of from where do we derive meaning and how do we manifest what we find there into the world. And I, I feel like we'll, we'll dial down a little bit the, the overemphasis on just cool tech innovation that has been the case for the last, whatever, 50, 100 years, et cetera. Well, and, and I think to that point too, um, I mean, a great example of, of like cool tech going the wrong way is like the tractor. Uh, like that, the tractor is obviously produced, allowed for, this incredibly efficient production of food, but it also created a lot of problems um, because now you're, you're, you're farming these, I mean, obviously we've been farming straight rows for a long time, but just the, the tractor, as, as, it, as you're farming with the tractor, you've got new problems that the tractor itself creates. And then you're on this, on this, this uh, path of continuously trying, okay, so I've got to solve this problem that I've, that I've created with the tractor in order to keep using my tractor. And then all of a sudden you get to where we are today, where we have these massive pieces of equipment, this monoculture farming, um, and, and it probably wouldn't be possible without the tractor. And so it's like, a, I like to think of it uh, going back to like the film industry, when you, when you focus a shot or a, a picture, you, you, you go into focus, past focus, and then back into focus again. And I think we're, we're, we've gone past the point of true focus. We've gotten distracted by all this technology and, and, and following the, the problem, trying to just continuously solve the problems that it's cr continually creating, which is leading us further and further away from the truth. Um, and I think now we're reeling it back in. Uh, take, take good stuff from, from the technology, along with a lot of the old stuff that we forgot and, and stopped using um, because we, we've been continuously solving these problems that the new technology is creating. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. And, and again, so much... I think Bitcoiners appreciate this more than anybody, but so many people fail to recognize how the incentives that emerge from the monetary and the financial and even the political system to a certain degree influence the world that takes shape, you know, downstream of them, you know? And so you, part of the reason why you have this like rampant monoculture approach to agriculture, where you're just trying to squeeze as much yield as possible and fuck the land is fuck. Well, I don't know, do get more fertilizer in and get more tractors in and squeeze more yield in and genetically modify the, the plant so that they're, you know, we can get even more yield out of it is, you know, partially because, well, we have to, we have to keep keeping pace with the monetary, you know, degradation and our savings are, are not holding up the way that they should. And so we need to get more income from the, the small piece of land or whatever piece of land that we have. And, you know, and all these different factors that are in some sense artificial as a result of the monetary and the political environment in which they're existing in are, you know, the, the behavior is adapting to them. And so one of those behaviors or a part of that behavior is this, this 
uh, overemphasis or obsession with something like yield in the agricultural domain and having to squeeze everything out of the land. And of course, that not being good for the land, nor the population who eats the food that's produced in that way, nor the producer who's feeling the anxiety and the pressure of having to engage in their land and engage in production in that way. You know, it's a very, seeming to me, a very unhealthy dynamic all around. And I think part of what you're doing and part of what, uh, you know, an emerging perspective that's that would be better. And I think that Bitcoin helps to foster because of its characteristics is one that's more conducive to uh, one being better for the land, being better for the person who's tending the land, being better for the people that are eating the products of the land and finding a, a way to, again, back to the, the prior conversation, harness that energy and turn it into sustenance and turn it into even meaning in its various forms in a more harmonious and a more balanced and a more healthy way. And, um, you know, that, I guess that's, that's why we Bitcoin, right? Or at least, and that's why we, we do what you're doing. And that's why we, we try to figure out in what ways these approaches can be improved and how we can uh, engage in better incentives to make them propagate more effortlessly. Yeah. I mean, a good example of that is like, uh, if you, on a, on a corn or soybean field, um, you get a, you get a certain amount of, of caloric production uh, on average. Well, this guy, Mark Shepard, he's, he thinks that you can get just as much from chestnut trees. And so the chestnut tree grows tall and you can still grow stuff underneath the, in the understory of the chestnut tree. So now you're producing just as many calories per acre with the chestnuts. And you can add a whole nother uh, layer of like chestnut finished pork underneath it. And, and these are practices that have been happening that they used to happen. But when you're on that Fiat hamster wheel, you don't think that you have time to wait for the chestnut trees to grow, to start producing. So you, you don't even have the incentive to plant them in the first place. Mm. Um, and so it's, there's, I mean, there are solutions, they, they exist. It's just creating, Bitcoin will create those incentives and, and allow people the, uh, the chance to wait for the trees to grow. Um, planting orchard, fruit orchards too. A lot of people around here have been pulling up their, uh, their grapes and their fruit. Um, I don't know necessarily why, but it's like, that seems crazy to me. The, the, they spent years late waiting for those those crops to mature those plants to mature and now that for whatever reason it doesn't make sense to grow them anymore i don't know yeah you know it's almost like nature has an optimal time preference you know because as you said about the trees and stuff like it it operates on its own time and maybe it's the case that the degree to which you know all other animals find like kind of plug into that time scale and that shifting the way that that nature moves through time and different seasons and that kind of stuff. And, and they find a harmonious balance. And maybe it's the case of the degree to which you depart from that is the degree to which the organism experiences, you know, challenges or, or degradation to a certain extent. I mean, look around the world today and look at the, the type of people that, that this system is conjuring up, you know, and broadly speaking, and it ain't good, you know, to put it mildly, like the people are, uh, let's say just to put it mildly far from their optimal, the optimal versions of their physiological, uh, cells or physiological, a, a physiological version of the cells that's, that's optimized. And, um, 
not that everyone's going to have that necessarily preference or goal for themselves, but, you know, again, it's, I mean, it's just blatantly obvious that we've departed in some way from, you know, the, the patterns or the movements or the wisdom of nature and the effects are just horrendous. And it seems like one of the ways that we get back to that is humbling ourselves by extending our time preference out to be more in line with the one that nature is somewhat dictating. And it seems to be the case that Bitcoin is a perfect instrument for allowing us to do that. Yeah. I mean, in the example of, of paying attention to the seasons and, and, and getting more, when we first got started out here, we, we kept getting caught off guard, like, okay, here's spring. We're not ready. You know, the, what are we supposed to do over the winter time? We don't know. It's like, like it, we, you learn really fast how divorced you are from uh, the following of the, the seasons and stuff like that. And um, yeah, it's just, uh, I, I think that the more, I guess you, you do get in tune with it. Um, the more things start to make sense as far as uh, the reason why things were the way they were. It's like, I keep trying to think about, what people used to do and why and and there's good reasons um but it, we've been able to i guess i keep thinking i think of it as subsidy but the fiat mindset or whatever is has allowed us to to focus so much on to, to just live in this world of convenience where we are able to just disregard and forget all of this useful stuff that people spent thousands of years figuring out and and working on yeah and i think one of the things we're not well, that's, it's talked about a lot today, but I think in the wrong context, you know, I, I'm not one of those environmental catastrophist types, but I think many of us can recognize that the course we're on in many different domains of our, of our life is unsustainable. And I think, you know, fiat has been a massive contributor to fostering and to incentivizing unsustainable ways. And those are showing up again, in our physiological health, and they're showing up in our impact on the environment and they're show, showing up in many different ways. And again, I, I think it, a lot of those are resolved by, you know, being more in tune in a more harmonious and more respectful in a more uh, understanding, grateful relationship with nature. And again, what do you know, this weird internet money seems to be facilitating a return to that type of a, that type of a harmony, which, you know, of course, for a lot of people, it sounds so absurd because, you know, it's hard to think of something more quote unquote technological. That's something that doesn't even really exist. You know, it's just abstractions of this thing on the internet. Uh, but that it's causing a return to a proper orientation to nature, to ourselves, to one another, that's fostering a far more, or, and that has the, the great potential to foster a, a world, you know, families, communities, cultures, worlds that is far more sustainable, that we don't have to be so terrified of that we're, you know, that it's going to end somehow or that, and again, not the climate catastrophe stuff, but just the, the unnecessary degradation of the environments that we're using to sustain ourselves. Yeah, there's definitely, um, I mean, it, it's, it's just becoming clear that if we continue to, to utilize the the resources we have and the way it's, it's, it's inefficient, it's wasteful. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's, what's so cool about Bitcoin mining is that it's like, I got this, I have this idea that it's, it, you're mining all of this stranded energy somewhere 
but and and so the the energy that you're utilizing to mine Bitcoin is as valuable as the Bitcoin you're mining. But then all of a sudden you might start to, if, you, if you're thinking about things through a permaculture mindset, you might find other reasons to use that energy that's, that can actually be utilized to actually buy more Bitcoin and then actually mining it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it I, the, the whole idea of, you know, the, the hydro dam that doesn't make sense to build because nobody's there, but it does make sense to build it because you can start mining Bitcoin with it. And then all of a sudden, since it's there, well, now people might start showing up and using that energy to, to start doing stuff around that hydro dam. Yeah. And, and, and so it, it's just the, the mining aspect of Bitcoin in, in, in making energy usage more efficient is there. But then also just the idea of like, as you hold your sats, you're, you're increasing the purchasing power of everybody else. Uh, th- this, this kind of idea in, in the Money Messiah where you you uh if you're trying to work towards your your true ideal um if you hold your sats like i I, i'm thinking like okay what if if we don't need money anymore because we have total abundance or the money is kind of not really a, a, a super uh important aspect to our lives because we can survive with or without it it's more of a you're holding these sats uh and if if you die and you pass your sats on to your uh your relatives then it's kind of like a uh uh, like a, a, a scorecard or something for how well you were in alignment with the creative forces because you were not wasting those sats on frivolous things. You chose to only spend them either to, to do something to increase the efficiency of your, of your usage of your energy to make more sats or you had no reason to spend them and therefore you, you, you utilized the sats in the, be- in the best way possible. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting perspective on it. And I know, you know, many people will, will take issue with that and say, well, you know, what's the, what's the problem with me spending it on, on fun stuff? You know, if I got a bunch of money, you know, everyone likes to go for a ride on a yacht and stuff like that. But it, it is interesting that, you know, for some people you could interpret it that way because there's clearly a moral dimension that seems to be emerging around Bitcoin. And you might say like, you know, uh, how did this, per- how does one's sat balance indicate, you know, how they, they found that optimal a path between order and chaos in their life and and how should we is it fair or can we judge them based on that you know to a certain degree that's inevitable and and it'll be interesting to see how uh perspectives perspectives on that shift as we you know go along and as this culture kind of complexifies and emerges and becomes more broadly adopted and it, it is interesting I, I, the whole like energy buyer of last resort I think is kind of what you're getting at to, to, because right now in, in this current era, it hasn't necessarily always been the case because Bitcoin mining has been extremely profitable. So it may be one of the, you know, one of the best uses of, of energy to just, you know, start that dam and mine Bitcoin with it. But the fact that in the future, let's say, you know, the, the profit margin on Bitcoin comes down to a certain degree to have this energy buyer of last resort everywhere to just to get the flywheel going for whatever other better, more valuable uses of energy might emerge in the future. As you were saying, like maybe it, you bootstrap something because you can automatically monetize energy at source, but maybe that flourishes into using that energy to whatever, what, whatever, you know, as we were d- discussing earlier, how meaning enters the picture. And I, I think more and more in this environment, meaning is going to direct well, it's difficult to separate value and meaning, but just, you know, I guess 
to oversimplify to oversimplify or maybe be a little bit too vague, but I think you know we'll we'll meaning will guide our preferences and our behavior and, and things like that. And, and to be able to um, redirect energy that maybe got its start because of something like mining Bitcoin into uses that we find more meaningful, you know, maybe Bitcoin mining will allow that process to, to happen because it's so, because you can be guaranteed that, that no matter where you have energy, you're going to be able to have an initial buyer and a last resort buyer. And that just opens up the opportunity to figure out the best uses for energy, energy for every individual to figure out what the most meaningful or valuable uses of energy for them are. I mean, it, I've got a little Creek that runs, uh, it feeds my pond, it's spring fed. And I, I kind of figured out, okay, if I, if I put a pipe and, and I, and I do make this little micro hydro thing, how many Watts can I produce? And it's like, well, I can produce like continuously 50 to hundred Watts by my calculations. And it's like, I don't know how uh, effective getting a miner on that will be, but this idea of like the home miner being able to, well, I'm already heating my water with electricity. Why not just have it be a Bitcoin miner too? Um, mm. And, and so then all of a sudden this hash, the hash rate will be distributed much more evenly across everyone across the world. I mean, theoretically, right? Um, mm -hmm. But then all of a sudden it's like uh, the network is secured by people who are using this energy regardless. Uh, if, so they don't necessarily, any sets that they get is a bonus. And, and I started thinking about the, the, this is kind of changing the subject a little bit, but there's, there's been some discussion about like, okay, what, what's the security budget for once the subsidy stops? Like what is, what is gonna happen? Well, if, if people are using Bitcoin to, to, to uh, suss out the true value and meaning of things, well, that's something that is worth tithing for, I think. People have tithed in religions, uh, giving up some of their hard-earned money to promote, uh, to, to give to the church. Well, the church is the miners. And so as a transaction, when you make a transaction, if you're tithing, you just add a high transaction fee as your tithe, to, as your contribute to the network. And if everybody's mining and there's a mining pool, then you might even get some of those sats back when you tithe. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I don't know. I just been thinking about how this, how this uh, more religious type of uh, culture could develop over time with Bitcoin. Uh, and, yeah. And I, maybe. I, I think, well, one for the record, uh, very much against the tail mission idea, but I, I do think you're right in that like these, if it becomes a problem in the future, then there will be, you know, people will be searching for ways to play their part, perhaps in, in ameliorating the problem. And maybe something like you described is like, is a way they'll do it. You know, when you, when you brought up the, um, the hodling and uh, example of, of, a, and using, um, what are we talking about? A hydro, a hydro dam sort of idea. Like, it's almost like, sats that are held are the reservoir and you know the ones that pass through the turbines are, are when there's a valuable use they pass through the turbine and otherwise they're held in a big reserve and as more and more people hold the capacity to use those quote you know that energy for valuable application just grows and grows and you know that dam is what determines what passes through and you know, perhaps a, a little bit of a, a, a lazy analogy, but, you know, as we all know, well, the Bitcoin, act of, Bitcoin forces these sorts of metaphors and analogies on people. The act of holding your sats is an act of philanthropy 
because you're by holding them, you're increasing the value of the sats so that when the people that do need to spend them, they have a higher purchasing power because you held yours. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's my point in like, if, if you hold your Bitcoin to the grave, uh, you're, you're being a philanthropist and you didn't have to give anything away. You just had to hang on to it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's so, so I, it's, it's so crazy to think of the, the implications of a, a system that works in that way, you know, like it's, you know, constantly mind blowing as we're all aware. One of the, one of the questions I wanted to ask you just kind of nuts and bolts of things, you know, I spoke to um, a guy in Australia who over the course of the last two years had got some land and got some cows on it and was starting to, you know, I think he had 10, 15 heads, something like that. And um, there was two things, you know, one, supply chains have been a mess over the last two years. Inflation is obviously a big factor for all sorts of inputs that one might have on a, on a farm or a permaculture operation. And so there's two things that I've noticed some Bitcoiners that are dabbling in this stuff have been emphasizing. One is to have a more, the few, as few inputs as possible, you know? So for example, if you're, if you're a rancher, then having land that can sustain the, the cattle grazing so you don't you don't have to buy feed and you don't have to buy oil to grow feed or or or, in tra or use tractors and all that kind of stuff and so in his case inflation was actually a positive because he was able to his inputs hadn't gone up but he was able to charge more or at least it wasn't a negative he was able to charge more for his meat and then the other one is like well recognizing that you're going to have some let's say machinery or, or equipment that you are going to need and probably going to need it in perpetuity into the future and recognizing that supply chains may lock up even further, especially if there's contentious issues between the U S and China or, you know, equipment producers and, and uh, markets for their equipment and trying to find ways of one, reducing the, the dependence on equipment, but two, even producing some themselves, you know, having local, or having networks of people that, you know, they make this piece of equipment or someone has 3D printers that produce this little widget and that kind of stuff. And has that been a consideration or a problem in terms of inflation for you at this point? Or how has that, how have you been dealing with that? Well, we, we've definitely, since uh, the beginning of like 2020, our it was kind of like, we were kind of playing. It felt like we were playing uh, a game game or something prior to the prior to 2020 like um but because every it was just a kind of affordable oh we could we could go if we need to we can go to the feed store and get a bag of feed um now it's like we need to learn how to we need to be working step taking one step closer to getting not needing those inputs use the tractor as little as possible if i'm using the tractor i want to be doing something that's permanent digging earthworks um you know, I don't want to be using my tractor just to pull my shade shelter around for the sheep. I do that right now, but I'm trying to, you know, we're, we've got these horses now, so let's use the horses to pull the shade shelter. It's things like that. Um, we're trying to grow, like in, in the case of the rabbits, we used to feed mix. We've been able to figure out how to, instead of feeding them a, a grain mix every day, just go and cut plants around the property that are growing like they're technically weeds, but that's rabbit food. And so we've been, we, as you integrate things more and more, your inputs become less and less. Uh, now, the the all of that the the machinery and everything like that, you just have to look at it as like an incredibly useful tool and and see it for what it is. Like you got to take 
advantage of that oil while it's still it's still cheap really when it comes down to it using that stuff to do stuff that has a long lasting impact that will produce energy dividends for long periods of time long after you've burned it um and and yeah there i mean i i don't think that people there's no way people could have been farming in back in the day with all these inputs that it just isn't profitable uh they had to there's techniques that people were using and we can take that uh what combine it with what we know now and and get even more than people were able to do in the past i mean sri lanka that was a kind of an interesting thing that i've been seeing where they said oh well every i, I don't really know specifically what's going on there but from what i've heard it's like they said everybody has to they can't use chemical fertilizers anymore uh they have to farm organically whatever that means well it's like you can't flip a switch like that and and expect people to know how to get the, the yields the good yields when they've been using these techniques require those inputs uh that's a, that's one of those time preference things where it, it takes you have to be building your soil slowly you can't just or or the tree you know the tree doesn't just you can't just make a 40 year old tree because you want to you got to let it grow you can't just have deep topsoils rich topsoils because you want them you have to grow them over time and so it's uh these having a mindset of reducing the inputs as much as possible over time whilst not ignoring the fact that you may need some. Yeah. And I mean, look at what's happening in the Netherlands right now, you know, that just a, seems like a, whatever their motivations were, it seems like the government was just like, you know, reduce nitrogen or we're, we're they're doing something to impose quite a heavy burden on, you know, a big portion of the farmers. And they were like, that's, that's not on. We can't do that. Or this is just a grab for our land or whatever. Again, the motivation was, and obviously they're, they're trying to stand up for themselves right now. And I suspect more of this kind of stuff will happen, right? As these, these perverse ambitions and motivations and incentives from the quote unquote ruling class are imposed on people that are, you know, even in the cases of those farms that are, that we were critical of a few minutes ago, those kind of, you know, monoculture sort of operations, even in those, you know, the, the, the bureaucrats are so disconnected from the reality on the ground. It's like, Hey, you know, like if, if we do what you want us to do on the time scale here, that you're making us do it, shit doesn't work. You know, it's just, I'm sorry, we can't, yeah. Nature doesn't care for your fiat decrees. You know, there's a certain, there's only, you can only be pushed so far and it doesn't matter what you think is right or wrong or good or any of that shit, you know? And I feel like, of course, I, I, that's going to happen more and more as, you know, hopefully the fiat system uh, reaches its zenith and, and hopefully begins to unwind. I say hopefully because obviously we want a different system, but, you know, I recognize there's a lot of uh, turmoil and, and hardship that will, that will likely be a part of that. But it just, you know, we, every day you open up Twitter and you just see the clown show on full display where we're it's all this nonsensical stuff is being imposed on people by a bunch of fucking morons. Well, I think the problem as the inflation goes up, as, as the, the price signals get even more and more distorted profitability, there's just no, okay. So the farmers in the United States are incredibly subsidized. Well, once that subsidy stops meaning anything because the money is worthless, then their operations become unprofitable and they have no choice but to figure something else out. So the problem will fix itself. Uh, it's just, are you going to be ahead of the curve or are you going to be trying to squeeze, hold on to that, those techniques that are 
no longer profitable. Yeah. Um, are you are you an outlier in your area, or there are are there many operations like you? And if you are an outlier, what have you been hearing amongst you know your the people in your area around you know price of energy inputs, inflation, all this stuff? So there's um there's another farm down the road. Uh, we're friends with them. They do we actually get uh, a lot of our sheep genetics from from them. So they'll go to this one farm. They'll in Wisconsin. They'll pick up sheep. They'll they'll breed for a year, and then we get kind of the hand me downs from them to keep the genetics going. But uh, they they do. I don't I don't know if they're certified organic. They're animal welfare certified. They they try and do permaculture. Uh, you know, pre practice the permaculture principles and ideologies as much as they can. But they uh, they have they're trying to do kind of that that movie, the biggest little farm. They, they, they're trying to do it fast and big um, and not grow slowly. I mean, that's one of the principles of permaculture too, is small and slow solutions. You want to, you need to, you need the time to, to recognize how to maximize your efficiency. There's a lot of efficiency that gets lost when you try and move too fast. And um, so they're, they're similar to us, but having lots of problems because they, there, there's a lot of, profitability losses in, in, in trying to get too big, too fast. And, and then just most of the people around here are conventional farmers. Uh, I, I bought a, a cast iron sink from a guy down the road. He had it sitting on the side of the road and I, he, he had an apple orchard and I was saying like, well, I'm not, I don't even want to spray my apples. That seems like crazy. Why would I want to spray? He's like, good luck ever trying to grow any fruit, you know, get any real fruit. But uh, I'm like, maybe the fruit that I grow isn't going to be to sell at a grocery store. Maybe I'm going to feed animals with that fruit. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I know that it makes sense to grow it and not spray it. Um, and people see me moving the fences too, all the time that by, you know, I'm dragging these fences around every, pretty much every day, every other day I'm moving fences. And they, my one neighbor says, why don't you just fence in the whole field? What are you doing? Why do you do it like that? And uh, I'm like, because then I can distribute the manure and, and urine evenly, you know, and I get an, a, a really intense impact on the soil. If I just fence in the whole field, then the sheep they'll camp over here and they won't touch this stuff over there. And, and I'm not really, I'm, I'm losing rather than building. So it's like that, once again, that kind of proof of work concept, if you, so yeah, there, I, we are an outlier in the area. Uh, I'm trying to do classes. Uh, I'm, I'm writing this intro to permaculture course. Um, I'm trying to, uh, with the Airbnb, I give these tours, all the guests that come through, I offer them a tour and I really try and hammer in like, this is a way to do things that is different, but look at it. You can see for yourself it's successful. Um, and just trying to expose as many people to this. It, it, I think people just don't know it's an option. They don't realize it. It's, I mean, I think more people know about Bitcoin than permaculture at this point. Uh, oh, yeah. it, permaculture is a very, very small uh, concept that really hasn't come to the forefront yet. Um, I'm very excited that so many Bitcoiners are interested in it, though. It's, it's you know, one of the things I often think about is how, and again, this can be catalyzed by many different causes, but it seems to be the case that Bitcoin is a big one for causing people to question what things like value and wealth actually mean to them. And, you know, I, I think broadly speaking, again, we could say that like, there seems to be a pretty clear what wealth means in the fiat culture. And there seems to be an emerging definition in Bitcoin land that is different to that. 
And, you know, the, the notion of, or the concept of soil wealth is one that at least I've heard before. And it seems like, you know, when you were giving that example of your neighbor and how you move the, you know, the fences around, it would seem that that is at least in part a result of considering soil wealth and wanting to cultivate it as a genuine form of wealth and not just considering it as like, you know, a, you know, area to be used to harvest a particular type of yield, let's say. And so how has being involved in this enterprise changed, expanded, influenced your notion of what wealth is? Well, I guess that kind of goes back to the, the eight forms of capital concept where, yes, there is, there is more, when, when you do one action, uh, what, the, I, how much can you get out of it? How, how are you, when we're integrating things together, uh, we're, we're trying to, for every use of our energy, get more returns. And so returns from many different directions. Like you said, now, I'm not just moving the sheep to grow meat. I'm moving the sheep to improve my soil too. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, managing the, the trees and everything, the way that we're doing it for, for more than one reason. Uh, and it's all tied together. Now, the concept of, of wealth, I guess, is like, I, yeah, there's just knowing that I've got, I've got food. I, even if everything, uh, our fruit trees didn't grow and our annual vegetables didn't grow, it's like I could always go out there and harvest an, an animal and, and have meat. It's like a battery just waiting to be, it's charged up and it's just waiting for me to access the energy in there. Uh, the same thing with the, I've got this walnut tree in my backyard. I, it was it was just a little seedling. It kind of found its way into the yard, and I just mowed around it, uh, starting out when I it just in my you know in the middle of my yard. And now it's it's forty feet tall. Seven years later, it's big, and it it's gaining a hundred dollars in value every year just from me putting some wood chips around it and mowing around it. You know, it's so I I start to see the value in all of these things. You know, all this stuff that's just it's there. You just have to know that what it's useful for and, and that it's valuable. And, and so then all of a sudden you start to see your wealth as not just how many sats you have or uh, how much, how much stuff you have, but like, you know, I mean, the, the fact that I get, I, I'm free to use my time uh, however I want essentially is huge. Um, yeah. the, I, people, sometimes I think that I'm retired or something. Cause I, I can just say, Oh, well, we're going to go do that. I can do that today. I guess I can, I can choose to not, do some of the things, some of the obligations that I have and, and go do this instead. If, when, granted, we live 10, 10 miles from the beach. We never get to the beach, you know, uh, but it's right. You know, I, anyways, we, we have the freedom to, to use our time the way we want. And we choose to just continue to build here. But uh, I guess, does that answer your question on, on wealth? Uh, my, my well, perspective? Well? Yeah. I mean, very much. It's a perfectly reasonable and suitable answer. And, and, you know, you mentioned uh, that, the money messiah piece that i wrote a few months back a couple times and one of the the i guess observations i make in that is i think one of the greatest forms of wealth possibly even the greatest that people strive to in different ways and 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 perhaps the manner in which they strive towards them even reflects a certain uh moral dimension or coherence with a type of truth or whatever is freedom you know you say you, you you're 
you have available to you all these different sources of wealth, but ultimately what, what do they track back to? They track back to you being able to determine for yourself what, you know, what you do with your time and what your life is. And, and you're able to have and maintain the necessary freedom in order to do that by virtue of the various forms of wealth that you've accrued for yourself, be they sats, be they soil, be they sheep, be they, you know, uh, walnuts, whatever. And so, you know, that, that so many, so often it seems to track back to that, you know, the, the idea of, of wealth, or at least, you know, maybe this is even my own judgment or imposition, but it seems like a, a very reasonable framing or uh, conception of wealth is things that deliver to you freedom. And then maybe the moral dimension of that is when established or to the degree that you have freedom, what do you do with it? And, um, you know, so I, I think it's a perfectly reasonable answer to the question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you're, if you, if you develop like Edgar Casey, I, I kind of messaged you about him a little bit. He, he always references, he was very into, um, Christianity as a religion, but he often said that he, he had this idea of the journey of the soul, right? He, he thought that you can reincarnate your soul could come back to earth many times. Um, and the whole purpose of you having these these generations of coming back over and over again was to work towards an ideal like and that's what you talk about money messiah or wrote about a lot is this this um striving towards an ideal is what uh essentially is the the name of the game here mm, and mm-hmm. um when you have freedom that gives you the the best ability to achieve what you what your ideal is um yeah. And, and obviously the ideal is, is I like to think of it as static, but it changes over time. Um, you know, I, I, I write these things down. It's like, well, what's my, what's my ideal? It's like, well, to, to make the world better for my children and their grandchildren. That's, that's a pretty big idea. What does that even mean? I don't know, but yeah. when you, you have to, these big concepts, when you have the freedom, you can start to work, work them out instead of, uh, worrying about the day-to-day you know shit am i going to be late for work uh, yeah you know yeah exactly i, I, I mean up, i forgot to fill up the car with gas but now i i got to stop to get gas on the way well i guess i might it's just you get distracted yeah, i mean it's so almost you, like it's almost like you need freedom to even be put in a position where you can even express your morality or your striving towards the ideal because if you don't even have the freedom you're not even in the game as you say you're you're on somebody else's clock you're in somebody else's game you're subordinate to deprivation and and anxiety and all this kind of stuff now then that doesn't obviously free you from an ethical judgment you know you can still you can still you're still in charge of your behavior but the it seems like the the more freedom you have the more you're able to explore and express what those, you know, what those ideals or what those, what that morality or ethic might be. And, and you can strive toward it more, more capably, more, more in a a more unobstructed uh, manner. And, you know, I, I think that's, that's amazing. That's, that's one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons why we consider free, why we value freedom so much and why freedom is so often associated with, with responsibility, because it's like, Hey, now you're the boss, right? You get to decide what your actions are going to be. What should they be? And of course, as you say, I mean, some are, are time bound, you know, when we're striving towards things, some are time bound and spatially bound. Like I need 
to get here in order to get there in order to get there. And some might be eternal, right? And this, this is why, where we wind up in the, in the realm of, of philosophy and religion and theology and these, these, these uh, values and principles, these eternal values and principles that have been uh, elucidated or, or discussed throughout history and, and their relevance in helping us to strive towards all those other subordinate things of value that we might identify in our lives. And I think that we're moving towards a, a world where people are going to start cooperating with each other, not out of necessity for survival, but out of desire to do some cool shit. Um, once, once again, I, I'm, and this is under the assumption that it's possible to create the abundance that I imagine is available out there. Mm. But I, yeah, I, I just think that uh, it won't, many, the vast majority of people will be able to live in a, a lifestyle in which they get to choose now uh, how they want to cooperate with others yeah. rather than, than feel like they're uh, they need to out of the ability just to keep their family alive and well and everything. So, and it seems in such an environment reasonable to assert that uh, those determinations like about who you get involved with or co cooperate with would be increasingly determined on the basis of character. If, you know, cause if everyone is sovereign, right? If you have the financial and other fundamental uh, base layer of, of security and, and you've, you're increasingly freeing yourself up, then as you just said, you, know, you don't have to commit yourself to being engaged or involved or cooperating with people that you, you, know, you don't wanna be, that you, you don't think are representations of certain values or principles. Um, and so I think you know, those determinations on who to get wrapped up with will be increasingly skewed towards Dependent, depending upon things like character and things like, you know, virtue and things like, you know, the values and principles that certain people express, in addition to perhaps, you know, trust, you know, maybe in the future, in a Bitcoin world or in, in these sorts of communities, the handshake will reemerge as sufficient uh, agreement, you know, and you won't need super complex legal and lawyer and the state involved in, in so many things, even when there's maybe even considerable capital on the line. It's, you know, I, I feel like the element of, of trust will, as a result of it not being necessary in so many other domains uh, or having been like, uh, yeah, not being such a big consideration in other domains because, you know, you can verify and you, you know, you know that you're, uh, that trust can't be broken in many regards that, it'll free you up to use trust in, in other domains where it's a more beneficial means of establishing understanding cooperation agreements than the model that exists today in an environment where nobody trusts anybody and you need so much complexity and so much threat of force involved in order to get anything done. All of a sudden we have a system in which you can, you can demand transparency and verifiably so. The, the, so, so that creates a, so you can choose to be uh, private with, with your, with the Bitcoin and with how it's being used, but you can also uh, demand that I, I will not participate, cooperate with you unless I know these things and, and be able to verify it. Um, and that, that I, I just don't know if that's really existed in the past. I mean, there's probably a, a analogies uh, of layers of, of trust uh, 
but this is like this is all bitcoin's all you need you know that's all you need to know is are the stats there it and who's who's can you sign the the trend you know can you sign for them do you have control over them or not uh i mean the implications on on like governance systems in regard to that are, are huge mm-hmm. you, all of a sudden you can have these i mean that the, well and the idea of these federate these federated mints um where now you have a community community bank essentially a federation of neighbors that are pooling their their resources together to accomplish something locally those possibilities i just don't know if they've ever existed like that before (laughs) and and we're just like right up against we're brushing right up against the the start of trying to experimenting with some of this stuff it's just i'm very uh, it's exciting man it's Totally. I mean, very early days and there'll be lots of mistakes and, and false starts along the way and stuff. But I think point being is that the, a, new, a new system is now available to tinker with and experiment with. And it seems likely to be the case that it's going to generate a lot of improved methods of governance and interaction and cooperation than, than we've probably ever had access to. Um, you know, it's, it's probably late in the discussion to ask you this question, but I never did uh, we, we never did cover how Bitcoin entered the scene for you, because I, as I understand it from our, a few messages, we exchanged back and forth, you know, you were doing all this already. And then in March, 2020, when shit hit the fan, uh, you had an epiphany of some kind and Bitcoin kind of reemerged and or emerged. I'm not sure what your history w- with it was. Uh, and you, that's when you decided to go down the rabbit hole and it's been kind of a, well, it's been a rabbit hole journey since, as many of us can relate to. And so two questions on that. What was that moment like and how did it come about? And then how, and I, we've covered a bunch of this already throughout this discussion, but if there's anything that we haven't covered in terms of how an understanding of Bitcoin has influenced your approach to what you've been doing with the the farm, uh, I'd love to know what those were or are. Yeah, I, mean, I was, um, my Bitcoin story is... I, I was exposed to it a few times here and there. You know, I, I, uh, I think it was like in 2014, a friend of mine got scammed doing some cloud mining. Uh, I don't, I don't know, I guess like you, I don't know how it worked, but I, he, he told me about this Bitcoin thing and he was, he was mining Bitcoin. And, but then all of a sudden he didn't, wasn't able to get any of it. And then uh, back when the, the previous $20,000 all time high, I had friends coming over with Coinbase uh, being like, look, I got all this stuff. The, the price is going up every day. This is insane. And I didn't have two nickels to rub together at the time. So I couldn't play, play that game at the time. You know, so I had heard of Bitcoin a few times, but I didn't really understand it or know too much about it. I just knew that it was like this thing that could go up in value very quickly and you could make some cash with it. You know, you could, you could buy Bitcoin and sell it for more later. Um, so I was meditating and uh, right after the, the, cra- the, the COVID crash happened and I just sat up and I had this premonition, check the price of Bitcoin, you know, check the price of Bitcoin. Oh, okay. I looked up, I look up, it was like 5,000 bucks or something. And I was like, well, it looks like the price has gone down to a point where I should maybe think about trying to figure out how to get some. And I took about, it took me about a week of like going on YouTube, trying to learn how, how it all worked and how to not get hacked. And it was a very foreign, very foreign concept to me. Um, and I figured out how to get some. And, and uh, then obviously, once you have some, you start saying, well, maybe now that I've got this thing, I should learn a little bit, keep learning about it. Uh, I've got real money on the line now. Uh, and so, yeah, just one thing led to another um, until here I am thinking that Bitcoin is going to like save the planet. Uh, <laughs> but 
it, it, it happens fast too. I mean, it's amazing how, uh, how much information, even from 2020 to now, how, the, the proliferation of information around Bitcoin and the access to learning about it has increased. I mean, oh, yeah. even just the ways to gain access to it, it's, it's like almost been exponential as far as I can tell. Um, but it, it's definitely, I mean, it's, my wife's not the biggest fan of, of my uh, obsession with, with Bitcoin, but it, it's definitely, I, I can't help but see everything through the lens of it now. Um, like, it, 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 especially like after reading the, the Money Messiah article, it's like, it, it, it does seem like this, this lens of truth that, that you can use to, to see the true value of things. Like, Bitcoin, I think, will ultimately be the the uh, the baseline for your decisions. Like, do do I do I send spell send or spend this Bitcoin so that I can make more later because I'm investing in something a, a profitable endeavor, or do I hang on to it because I don't know what to do with it right now? And and so that it, the obviously the long long time preference, like a perfect example is like Bitcoin was uh, close to sixty thousand dollars. Uh, this winter and i wanted to buy this electric chainsaw because i i just hate messing around with the freaking gas power chainsaws i don't know much about small engines i'm always having they're always stopping and i'm having to clean the carburetors out and it's it's a bear for me to really figure out how to use these chainsaws well and keep them sharp and whatever so i was like man if i get the i already have the the certain tool set if i get the chainsaw i've already got some batteries that i can plug into it maybe it's not going to be able to cut down the most biggest trees that i can but it'll it'll make me It'll incentivize me to use a chainsaw a lot more often. And I didn't buy it. I just said, I think I'm better off just messing around with the stupid gas powered chainsaw I have and uh, holding on to these sets. And, you know, now in hindsight, I wish it would have cashed in a little <laughs> bit up there. But, uh, you know, that so it, it, it just makes you really question, do I need this crap that I want to get? Uh, you know, do, do I spend my sets? Um, that there's a there, you have to play that balance of opportunity cost. Will, will the spending of the sats help me make more sats in the future? Or am I better off holding on to them? Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and it, it's that is such a more ultimately beneficial, I think, like comparative tool for your decision making because it, it really makes you consider what value is and whether the value that you can derive from exchanging your sats for something versus holding them is worthwhile. And what I, you know, among other things, I think part of the effect of that is, is that it ends up meaning that like only the things of extreme value end up, you, you, your life becomes filled with only things of extreme value because everything else just is like, nope, that's not valuable enough for me to consider or for me to exchange my, my savings for, but these things might be, and these things might be beauty and family and health and, you know, those sorts of things, those more transcendent things and all the frivolous shit. It's an, it's an immediate, like, fuck no. And, and of course the inevitable outcome of that is like when you're, when your mind and your life is so much more populated by those things of extreme or transcendent value, you're probably going to be a happier, more well-adjusted person because those things are real. They're true. I mean, again, this is, we, we wind right up in, in theological territory because it's like what does it mean that those things deliver that type of joy or that type of satisfaction or that type of energy and and it would seem to mean that like they're they're somehow truer than those frivolous things that you've discarded as a result of this comparative value 
engaging in, in comparing value in this way. And uh, what does it mean for the thing that's allowing you to do that, right? What, what do you call that thing that allows you to discover value better than everything else, that allows you to engage value, that even allows you to become more valuable? You know, and so you wind up with, with all sorts of weird ideas as a result of those processes taking place. Um, is your, I don't mean to be too personal here, but is your wife totally against Bitcoin or just doesn't see that, is not wearing the orange colored glasses uh, as, as heavily tinted as you are? Yeah, I'd say that. She, she, uh, she has Bitcoin too, but um, she doesn't, she sees it in a, in a different way. You know, right. I, I, like I said, I see this as like a, a tool well, like how, how I was interested in filmmaking, I was like, this is the universal language. I could use this to like change the world and, and really mm. express some some good ideas to people and, and reveal some some information, get get information out there. And uh, I think Bitcoin is is just well, it's obviously the most important now thing um, for doing that. And she just doesn't really see that yet. Maybe she never will. I don't know. But um, and she, she certainly doesn't like I, t I can't help myself. I. I you know, we spend a lot of time together. We don't see a lot of different people. And I'm just talking about this stuff all the time. And she, I think that's yeah. part of it, too. She's like, can we just can we talk about anything else? Like, what? please, just, let's have a yeah. different conversation right now. I feel like what you're saying right now is many people can relate to that experience, myself included. I mean, it's why I started the podcast uh, in late 2019, because you know, my, I just needed someone else other than my girl. We were living in Thailand at the time in a similar situation. Like we didn't have a big social group and she was just, I mean, she understood that it was something that was really important and meaningful to me. So she, it's not like it was a problem for us, but you know, I'm sure she was happy to see that I had another outlet to have these conversations with other people rather than just her. Um, but you, you know, it's not something that you can force on people, right? It's, People well, see it in, the, in their own time and maybe they do and maybe they don't. And that's just the way the cookie crumbles. And the Bitcoin meetup uh, really scratches the itch uh, yeah. in, a, in a great way. Uh, I, man, I, I am just so grateful for having discovered that that Bitcoin meetup is right down the road. I don't know how it's just uh, another one of those serendipitous things where it's like I was getting ready to drive to Chicago to go to BitDevs because I, I was that hungry to like talk to some, <laughs> some people who are deep into Bitcoin in person. Um, and then I just, I was listening to the, uh, some, there was a shout out on, uh, what was it? Marty Ben's podcast. Uh, and, and it's like, Oh yeah, there's a Bitcoin meetup in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Like, what? That's right down the road for me. All right, go do is that. It, there's gotta be a resource that like identifies all the Bitcoin meetups. Is there not like all over the U S or all over the world, like a page you can go to that just points them all out. I feel like I've seen something like that. Yeah, because I've been trying to find, I did do a little, um, there, I can't remember the website. There is a list of, of ones somewhere. And then I, I obviously, I think just like I've been, I search on meetup.com. It seems like mo the, it's still kind of the standard practice for people making Bitcoin meetups to post them on meetup.com. Because yeah. uh, I've got a friend in Southern Illinois where I'm like, dude, you need to, you need to find a meetup and some people in Denver um, and then Milwaukee too. And I'm, I'm just like trying now. I'm like, you have to go to these Bitcoin meetups. This is how, because now you get in touch with people who actually know how to use Bitcoin. You can, you can, you can buy and sell sats from each other or buy and sell stuff. I bring maple syrup. I brought some maple syrup to the Bitcoin meetup, sold some for sats there. Nice. Um, you know, it's just all of a sudden 
there's and people I think are hungry to collaborate with other Bitcoiners. And this is how you get together with them. You get face to face with them. Um, it's I, I mean, I can't recommend it enough for anyone that lives close to a Bitcoin meetup. Find it and go to it. It definitely uh, seems to me like there's a hunger for like the circular economy, like transacting with Bitcoiners, whether it's buying and selling Bitcoin, but more and more the case, other goods, you know, like because one, you know, you can be reasonably certain that if it comes from a Bitcoiner, it's probably high quality. It's probably made or produced with an ethic that you might agree with, whether it's, you know, in the realm of arts and crafts or whether it's in the realm of, uh, you know, food and agriculture, like it, it was done properly with the right amount of time and care and that kind of stuff. And you just, you, you want to, you want to transact with people that share so many uh, ultimately values with you as they're represented in Bitcoin and Bitcoin being that kind of shelling point for bringing all th those people together and, and allowing one another, each other to identify themselves as, as those types of people or as people that, that have a similar value set or a, a similar, you know, value hierarchy. And it definitely, you know, my observation is that uh, people really want to transact with, with one another and all the better that the different things that Bitcoiners are getting involved in producing, be it cattle, lamb, oranges, wine, art, you know, there's, that's been really cool over the last two years to see that really start to proliferate, right? Whereas that was never a huge part of the discussion prior to that. But now, you know, like there's just people out there doing cool shit and, and saying like, yo, I'm a Bitcoiner and I'll sell my stuff for Bitcoin and this is what it is. And I think there's, you know, that's, that's how the circular economy that ends up becoming the economy maybe in the future gets bootstrapped, gets going. Yeah. I mean, it goes from being this distributed, like internet based subculture where you, you get, a, I mean, I, I'd imagine if I was trying to sell my stuff online for Bitcoin, um, people would be let, they don't know me. They, they don't, you know, they don't interact with me. Um, so it, it's just, when you get together face to face with people, all of a sudden there's this, like, like we were talking about this handshake can happen, this true trust and real relationship can be created. And, and so now we've, it's like, it is a subculture, you know, the Bitcoin, using Bitcoin and, and interacting with other Bitcoiners is a subculture. And we just, I, I personally, I, I just like to be a part of it. And, and this yeah. Bitcoin meetups are a great way to, to do it, actually do it. Um, totally. It's no, it's not any mysterious online and not pseudonymous Twitter handles anymore. It's like real people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and I mean, one example that seems um, to be doing, you know, going very well is I, th I, I, I think it's only maybe in Texas or in the South or whatever, but this cattle cooperative where, you know, Bitcoiners came together with certain cattle producers and we're like, look, we want better access to higher quality food made by people that share certain values in order to be more resilient, more healthy, more strong, more affordable, all this kind of stuff. And it, it seems like many people, um, have come to like be a part of that or take advantage of it in some way. And I think more of that is coming and that, you know, that'll be a very good thing. I mean, this, it makes a lot of sense that the, the very beginnings of it are energy and food, like the things that people <laughs> need, no matter, no, no matter what that you will always have a need for energy and food. And mm -hmm. so the fact that these are some of the first ways that people are using, spending their Bitcoin, well, you have to buy food. You know, if you're if you're one of these people who got on zero, um, 
and and you're going to be spending your sats on food uh yeah. you have to you, you you have to survive so yeah yeah it makes yeah. a lot of sense that oh go ahead no I, you took the words out of my mouth i was gonna say yeah it makes a lot of sense yeah um so it, it, sorry go ahead did you have something to no, finish no, off no. Yeah. well man i uh this has been super interesting conversation was there any element of the prod you know what you're doing or ambitions or plans that we haven't covered that you think would be uh useful or interesting to cover well i think that uh, i just want people to realize that there's no like right way to to practice permaculture or to like start homesteading or you know there's no authority on this stuff um almost everyone in every situation if you're creative enough can start to produce some of your own things whether it's soap or i mean if you got a roof you can have bees you know if you have a, a garage you can probably grow rabbits um there's a there's you can grow microgreens in your basement or tilapia in a, in a ibc tote down there. there there's just a lot of ways for people to start becoming more sovereign um in in almost any situation and and not to feel like the end get like i have to go get a ranch and have 10 cattle and other if i can't do that then i'm screwed no there's a lot of little steps you can start taking now have a worm bin under your sink and start composting um these kinds of ideas uh, try and be more efficient with your water usage start producing some of your own hygiene products make your own soap or toothpaste or whatever it might be because whatever you're interested in you you feel that empowerment of being able to make it yourself, uh, you start to think more, uh, you ask yourself, well, what else can I do? What, what, what's the next thing that I can do? And this is how I started just one step at a time. Uh, I, I walked away from normal society and now here I am, I I'm looking back. I'm like, I don't even know who I was. You know, it's like, I'm a different person now. Uh, totally different. And, uh, it's just because of the one little thing at a time. So, and so you make, like soap and toothpaste and that for yourself yep soap toothpaste we brew our own beer uh man just about everything that you can imagine is if we can try and make it ourselves we've tried it you know um now and it's not to say that we always have our own homemade soap available sometimes we run out we're too lazy to make more and we buy soap at the store we yeah. have that option it's great but it's the fact that you know how to do it and then it's easy to have the materials and stuff on hand to make it when you, when you have the time or whatever. Um, yeah. Is, is there any, I guess, final question just for fun. Is there any like guilty pleasure or, you know, vestige of the fiat, your former fiat lifestyle that you still, you know, can't do without, or every now and then you, you indulge in, in some way. We, we go out to eat, uh, we go to the restaurant, you know, make sure to go on a date like once a week, you know, and do something. Um, we like, I mean, I, yeah, I like to go hang out at the brewery and, um, and eat out at a restaurant and be served food and not have to cook and not have to worry about it. Um, we, and, and it doesn't sound too fiat to me. That's just a nice uh, way to, I'm trying to think of, uh, I guess like maybe, maybe a better example is like, what, what do we still, what could we be doing, um, that we, we just say it makes more sense for us to just, um, like we're not the best at recycling, you know, we're, we, I'll, I'll throw some crap in the trash and just take it down to the end of the driveway and let it go in a hole in the ground. Like I'm still, I tried doing that for a while, like, uh, being responsible for all my trash and, and having all every single jar and plastic container that we used sorted and 
and stashed away somewhere and fit, try to figure out a way to use it instead of throwing it away. And then you get piles of trash all over your house and you're like, well, <laughs> I guess I just got to throw this crap away and get it out of my uh, hair. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I think take trash is a very fiat idea that you, that you could just take a bin down to the end of the road, down to the road and then just let somebody else deal with it and throw it in a hole somewhere. It's like, but yeah, I mean, hopefully in the future, it's still great to have, I mean, with all this stuff, I know we speak in fairly uh, radical or idealistic terms oftentimes, but like, of course, people want to have that degree of convenience. It would just be better if the provider on the other end of that action did something better with the trash rather than throw it in a hole. And you had the capability and the willingness to pay for them to do that. You know, that, that's right. what, I don't necessarily, I don't want to really deal with recycling and all that kind of shit, you know, in, in my house, but I very much would be willing to pay for, you know, a service provider that would dispose of my garbage in a, you know, in a more sustainable or more quote unquote environmentally friendly way, you know? And I think, when regulations come down and when people have more capability to make these types of choices because they're more financially secure because they, you know, they're more financially free, as we were saying, then I think they'll be able to make those choices and they'll want to make them. But part of the, part of the, the insidious way in which, you know, this hyper fiat hyper status sort of culture in which we live in today has, uh, has relieved people of moral development is in part, I think, all those different actions that have a, you know, all of our actions ultimately have a morality imbued in them, but the ones that are maybe a little bit more obvious where there's more responsibility or more sacrifice or what have you involved, uh, we've, we've been mandated to act and perform in a certain way. So we're totally relieved from even having to confront the decision of how to engage in those actions. And as a result, we, whereas normally, the interplay and being confronted with those decisions fosters a moral development. If, you know, even if it's over time or if it's slowly or whatever, but you're confronted with having to make your own decisions. So many of those have, we've just been relieved of them via regulation or, you know, um, or mandated behaviors of various kinds or even cultural norms, of course, but those are, you know, maybe we can, we can be less critical uh, of those because they're not necessarily imposed on us by other people. But, you know, um, I don't know what my point was there, but I think, you know, that's been part of the landscape that's been generated as a result of this, you know, crazy fiat uh, enormous government system that we're in is that um, all these little decisions that little by little foster, you know, your own development, you know, moral and otherwise to say like, who are you and what decisions do you want to make and what responsibility are you going to take for the, for the impact of your decisions, they get made for you. And as a result, the, the refinement that, and development that comes with making them is lost. Yeah. That, I mean, and that's like the fiat subsidy, right? And, and, and people are, their, their decisions are subsidized where they can afford to not have to consider what am I going to do with, yeah. with this glass jar or, or whatever it might be. Um, and yeah, it's, it, and that's why homesteading, I think it just makes like, if you can reduce your cost of living by making your own stuff, like not only are you producing a high quality product for yourself, uh, that's very, it's gratifying to do that. It makes financial sense too. Like that's all, it, it's way more cost effective to make your own soap, even though it might seem like a small, uh, like how much money does everyone spend a, in a year on soap? I don't know. 
but it, I certainly spend hardly anything because I make it myself and it's, <laughs> and, I, and it's great freaking soap, you know, and it's like now I, and if you apply those little changes in as many aspects of your life as possible, all of a sudden you're like doing everything yourself. You hard spend hardly any money on, on your basic living. And then you've got all this extra dough to, you know, go to the restaurant and not worry about it. Yeah. Uh, and you know that like, you made those decisions. You know, and I think there's both an empowering component to that and a, a confrontation with responsibility component to that, because, you know, like I intentionally and I consciously decided to do this thing this way to make my own soap, to grow this, to do that. Like I wasn't removed from the outcome of any of this stuff. I've injected myself into the outcome of all this. And so in those outcomes is my responsibility and is my character and is my decision making and are my preferences and are my morality and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's a good thing that that is probably the right environment to foster well-integrated, well-adjusted, healthy people. And yes, like I'm, the, I'm grateful to see the return of that. Like the, that's back to the eight forms of capital. It's like, not only did you make, make financial sense, but now you've gained a skill set, which is intellectual capital. And then you've made a better connection with, uh, with your environment. You know, there, there's just so many, the, the compounding effects of, of, making those decisions and choosing to live that way are immense. It's like, and, and it just, like I said, one little thing at a time, it, it can be overwhelming to think I need to produce all my food tomorrow. Like I, we don't produce all of our own food. Not, I mean, granted, like if shit really hit the fan, we could always just go eat lamb and survive. Yeah. But that's no, no one, I don't want to only eat lamb every day. Is I, you know, it's like, I like to, I just have to buy apples from the grocery store because my apple trees aren't producing yet. And even if they were, I couldn't get apples all year. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it's great to have the option to go get some. Um, it's just when you're reliant on it. Uh, just oh, again, back to the point, w one step at Baby a time. Baby steps. Just, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Just yeah. what, what, what are you interested in trying to learn, you know, figure it out and uh, go for it. Yeah. Well, man, this has been super interesting for me. Um, I love that this is more and more a part of what's happening with all this and, and that Bitcoin is helping to foster and facilitate and make this more interesting and uh, realistic and, and uh, possible for so many people. And I want to, you know, we'll have to do this conversation again in a year or so and, and see where things are at and what you're, what's going on. Um, where can people, if you want to direct people anywhere, then, you know, feel free to do so now. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, just follow me on Twitter, I guess. I'm at Hodel Rev. Uh, that's it. And I'm I'm gonna be trying to post. I, now that I have like a real connection, I'm I'm trying to just post everything that I'm kind of doing, you know, throughout the day. Just a picture of it and a little description. And the so, stuff uh, is up on Airbnb and the farm tour and all that jazz. That information is on Airbnb. Yeah, that's on Airbnb. I I mean. If you find me cool, I'm, I'm not really comfortable putting that out there for everyone. Uh, but cause sure. yeah, but, uh, yeah, if you find me on Airbnb, come stay, we, we'd love to have you. Uh, we got the yurt and we have the, we can hope we can sleep six in the house. Um, we're open all year. Awesome. I love to give tours if you know, people come by and, and, uh, yeah, keep an eye out on the Twitter for the classes. Uh, I'll be starting with an intro to permaculture class, hopefully by this fall. Um, which will just go into some more of the nitty gritty about the 12 principles and the ethics. And it's going to be uh, obviously heavily weighted with the Bitcoin lens. So 
Incredible. Well, if I'm ever, if I ever find myself up that way, I'm definitely going to hit you up and, and come for a tour and, and see what's going on up there. So thanks again for the time in and uh, keep in touch. We'll, we'll talk again in the future. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Have a nice All day. Right. See you, brother.